Well, we're turning a corner in Matthew this morning, and uh, the reason that is is because there is the way Matthew is structured, as we've been saying all along, there's these kind of five main teaching sections where Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the disciples. He's uh, primarily, so the Sermon on the Mount, uh, sending out the disciples for mission. And then the last one we just did in Matthew 13 was the kingdom parables, the kingdom parables. And, and so we see this, this transition this, um, the, um, this morning into the next narrative section, the next storyline section that's going to span from now until chapter 18 in the book of Matthew. I want to draw your attention, though, as we do transition and as we look at this section this morning to actually the end of chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, going back a little bit, um, chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, because you will notice, you will notice that there's a similarity to the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of the, or what we're going to look at this morning. And you remember in chapter 12, chapter 12 is kind of a fateful turning point in the plot of Matthew because uh, Jesus um, has rejected his generation of Israel. By and large, they have not believed. They've either been in total opposition uh, in the terms of like the scribes and the Pharisees, or uh, they've been ambivalent. They've been ambivalent like the crowds, by and large. Not everyone. Obviously, there's the disciples that have repented and have followed Jesus, Uh, But that's kind of how chapter 12 ends, and the capstone of that is what we read in verses 46 through 50, and you'll note some similarities to what we read today. Matthew 12, 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And what we talked about when we preached that section is that when Jesus' mom and when Mary and his brothers are coming to see him, it's not just a social visit. Uh, They're interrupting him teaching about the kingdom. Uh, They're not actively following Jesus. Uh, So there's some problems here. Uh, And we actually find out from Mark, if we were to look at Mark, it's because they think he's insane. Uh, they think that Jesus is out of his mind. And, but what we see in that is really kind of a capstone on the rejection of his generation in the rejection of Jesus by his closest family. And so then who does he identify with? Not those who are closest by blood, but, though, but his disciples, those who have repented and entrusted themselves to him. Those are his family. That's what he says. And so you see here, Jesus' uh, mother, his brothers, and his sisters are referenced Well, in our passage this morning that Steve just read for us, the same people are referenced, aren't they? Why is that? Well, it bookends Matthew 13. Why does it bookend Matthew 13? Because Matthew 13, as we talked about the secrets of the kingdom of the uh, the heavens, uh, the idea of the kingdom is coming from the heavens to earth, um, it is set in the context of Jesus' rejection and by the rejection of him closest, uh, those closest to him. And so we're coming out of Matthew 13, we're coming out of those parables into the next section, and one of the things you're going to see in this next section of narrative is increasing rejection, um, and you see it again in this passage this morning. Now remember, Matthew is speaking to a Jewish Christian audience. Uh, We're not exactly 100% sure when Matthew wrote his gospel. I think it's the first gospel written, but regardless, he's writing to Jewish Christians who... 
uh, their friends, their neighbors, their family are not, by and large, following Christ. And so uh, they have to understand, why has Israel stumbled over the Messiah? Why has this happened? Um, and we already know some answers to that. Um, one of the things we can see, even if we were to go back to Matthew 11, uh, when it talks about John the Baptist, you remember John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? See, uh, even to John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, he wasn't what he, they expected. Uh, Jesus didn't fit the common conception of what the Messiah would look like and would do. The Messiah is supposed to be this high, exalted, kingly figure. He's supposed to establish his kingdom. He's supposed to establish justice in the world. But we see really kind of a normal guy. Yes, he's doing miracles. There's no doubt about that. And that's cool. But it still doesn't match the picture. He looks humble and normal. So what, what is this? This is, this is unusual. It doesn't fit the common conception. And so that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that Israel stumbles over the Messiah. But this morning, as we enter this passage, uh, Matthew's going to kind of continue with that idea, but he's going to give us another aspect of explanation for why Israel is rejecting its Messiah and also warning, and also warning. Uh, so he's explaining to his audience, his Jewish Christian audience, look, Look at what the generation around Jesus was like. So that's explanation, but it's also warning. It's also warning to them. And that warning we could encapsulate by the idea of familiarity, which is why we've entitled this message, Familiarity Breeds Contempt. We're familiar with that um, kind of common saying, and it really does hold true in this section. And so the main idea for the text this morning as we walk through it is this. Beware. Beware that familiarity with Jesus does not lead you to unbelief. Beware that familiarity with Jesus does not lead you to unbelief. And there's this, it's this small section in, at the, um, that we're looking at this morning. Uh, kinda, you can kind of split it into two parts. Uh, the first part we could title under this, familiarity can lead to outrage over Jesus. So that's really kind of the crowd's response uh, from 54 through the first part of verse 57. And then Jesus amplifies that, and he says, familiarity can lead to dishonoring and disbelieving Jesus. And the second part of verse 57 and the end of the passage in verse 58. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's look back briefly at verse 53. Now, verse 53 says this, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Now, really that verse kind of functions as a hinge. It both concludes what we just saw with Jesus talking about the parables. And you remember throughout Matthew, that's Matthew's key phrase, when Jesus had finished blank. That's his key phrase for saying, signaling, all right, I just finished one of the main discourses of Jesus in the gospel. But it also kind of looks forward a little bit because it says that Jesus went away from there. There's geographic movement. There's geographic movement. Jesus is moving on. Probably in Matthew 13, Matthew 12, Matthew 11, probably he's in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So where does he go? Well, verse 54 talks about that. In coming to his 
hometown. Now, this word, uh, its root goes back to the idea of father, and really you could translate it his fatherland, his fatherland. So literally it's the idea of he's going to the place connected with his father, with his ancestors. Now, if you think about it like that, that's, that, could be, that could encompass a number of different geographic regions. It could encompass Galilee, that's where Jesus grew up. It could encompass the whole of Israel, really, because that's Jesus' fatherland. It's, got the, it's kind of this term that's very flexible. But the question is, where is he going? It seems like he's going to Nazareth. Uh, that is the city of Joseph. It was referenced in Matthew 4 uh, that um, Jesus was at Nazareth. But then, uh, remember, in Matthew 4, it talks about how Jesus moved from Nazareth, which is a little town of about probably 500 or so people in the hill country, and then he moves about 25 miles down to the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, and that becomes Jesus' home base of operations, and that's where he's been, by and large. He's made a few other trips, but he's been in that area. So now he's coming to his fatherland. He's coming to Nazareth. He's coming to Nazareth. And after he comes there, he does what? He was teaching them in their synagogue. Now, we've seen this before. In fact, if we were to look from, say, Matthew 4 through Matthew 12, uh, that's Jesus' pattern. He goes to these places, and he goes and teaches in the synagogue. He, the local gathering of the Jewish people to, for instruction, uh, and he is teaching them. So he's teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. That's where he's at. Now, notice the result. What is the result of this? Um, And we might even ask a question before that. What is he teaching? What is he teaching? Because he just got done teaching a bunch of parables. And remember, the parables were a big turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, from plain teaching to more obscure teaching because of the crowd's rejection of Jesus. So, Uh, The crowds, by and large, in Capernaum and elsewhere haven't responded to Jesus' message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They haven't responded to that. And so what does he do? He shifts into parable mode to create a two-way mirror to say, all right, crowds, I'm going to still give you revelation, but it's going to be obscure unless you're part of my disciples, in which case I'm going to explain it to you. So is is he talking in parables? Or is he teaching in the way he has been teaching since Matthew 4 through 12 about the kingdom and the Sermon on the Mount? We can't be absolutely dogmatic about which way, but given um, the language of teaching and the teaching coupled with miracles, that language is usually connected with Jesus' teaching about the kingdom clearly. So I would argue he's probably saying what he has been saying all along, basically. Maybe he's adding the parables into it now. But repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And uh, notice the crowd's response. He was teaching them there in synagogue with what result? So that the crowds, um, or they, just they, the, the Nazarenes, were amazed. They were astounded. So they're coupling this this idea of seeing his miracles, his kingdom foretaste, and then he's talking about the kingdom, and they're astounded. This reinforces the idea that he's saying the same thing he has been saying since chapter 4, because if you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the crowds were amazed. They were astounded. It's the same word that's used here. 
So he's teaching things like are encapsulated in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching about the kingdom. He's giving kingdom foretaste through his miracles, through what he's done before. Um, so they're amazed. They're astounded. They're blown away. Well, that's how we would say it, right? They're blown away by his teaching, his authoritative teaching, and his miracles. And this has been the case all along. And notice how they respond. They, they're blown away, and they say, they say, what? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And really their question, and, and you can notice if you skip down to, say, uh, the end of verse 56. Notice how the end of verse 56 ends. It says, where then did this man get all of these things? So their overarching question is, from where? In other words, they're questioning, where is the source of this astounding teaching, this wisdom, these miracles? Where, are, where is it coming from? Where is it coming from? Now, let's think about that question. That's our overarching question. Is that a good question to ask? Yes, it's a good question to ask. If you're seeing Jesus and you're hearing him teach, and you're seeing his miracles, his deeds of power, and you're hearing all of that, is it good to ask the question, where's this, where's this stuff coming from? Yes, it is good to ask that question. And where should that question lead you? That question, if you were asking it in a genuine way, should lead you to the conclusion, as it did the disciples, that this is, this is a man speaking for God. At the very, very least, that's what you should conclude. This is a man speaking for God. And even as we will see, uh, and we have seen throughout the gospel, is more than that, right? It's not just that Jesus is a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's much more than that. He's the son of God. He is the most personal representative and po most personal messenger that God could send. That's how you should answer that question. That's the only logical conclusion to seeing his teaching and his works. So his teachings backed up by his works. It should lead you in that direction. Is that where it leads the Nazarenes? Is that where it leads the Nazarenes? No. Look at verse 55 and how they begin. They ask more questions. Really, these are rhetorical questions. But notice how they, they begin to answer for themselves this question of from where? From what source are these, is this teaching and these miracles to Jesus? Is not this one the son of the carpenter? Now, the word there for carpenter, we, we, we know that Jesus was a carpenter. We know Joseph was a carpenter. Usually, Jewish fathers would pass on their trade to their son, so we, um, we know Jesus was a carpenter. We know Joseph was a carpenter. The idea of carpenter, though, it, it could be more just like the idea of builder. So someone who builds, uh, whether it's a house or some sort of structure. So it's not just that Jesus is making furniture or things like that. That could possibly be, but he's a builder. He's a builder. His father was a builder, and he's a builder. Uh, but notice Joseph's not named. Why not? Well, obviously he was named earlier in the book of Matthew, some people speculate, especially since Mary and his brothers are named, that um, Joseph's dead by this point. We don't know that for sure. It's possible. But here's how the crowds are thinking about it. Here's how the Nazarenes are thinking about it. We know his trade. We know, or they think they know, his father. Uh, we know this guy. We know his status in our society, right? We know his social standing. 
in our society from his father. And then that kind of gets extended for the rest of his family. Is not his mother being called Mary? His brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? We hear of James and Jude later on, Jude, Judas, same, just different forms of the same name. But what do we see here? There's, what are they asking? What are they saying? Oh, don't we know these people? Yeah, we know them. It's a rhetorical question. We know these people. We know the carpenter. We know the carpenter's family. Notice this also, uh, it goes even to the sisters. And his sisters, are they not in company with us? In other words, aren't they around here? Don't we know this family? Don't we know these people? And the answer, of course, is yes. We know these people. He's in Nazareth, tight-knit community for a relatively small town. Everyone knows everyone. So what are they, notice, what's their overarching question? Where did we, he get these things from? And what are they saying? We know this guy, we know his family, and it, it doesn't line up. It doesn't line up. And even there, uh, that's not necessarily a wrong thing to, to, um, to conclude. Notice how they, they end, right? It wraps around with the same question. Therefore, from where this man get these things? Right? They come back to the same question. We know his family, we know where he came from, but that doesn't answer the question of where is he getting this stuff. It's not coming from what we know about him. It's not coming from what we know about him. And even there, up to that point, that's not bad, right? Because that can still lead them into a good direction of this has got to be from, for him speaking for God, of God revealing truth to him and speaking on his behalf. The miracles back that up. It could still lead them in that direction, but see how they respond. Verse 57, and they were offended by him. Or uh, the idea is outraged. This word has actually been used before in Matthew. I think the last time it was used was in the parable of the soils. You remember the rocky soil? Uh, that represented someone who hears the word, it begins to germinate. Yes, the kingdom, they're excited about the kingdom. Yes, the kingdom's awesome, it's coming. I can't wait for that. And then when they encounter persecution, it says that they become scandalized. They become outraged. They become offended. I didn't sign up for this. It's the same word that's used here. How are they using it? They're, they're, they're outraged that this, this, this fellow that they know, they've, they've probably watched him grow up, and they know his family, they know his social standing, and they are outraged that he is speaking. Remember what he's doing. He's teaching them. He's saying, I have something to tell you in the synagogue. They are outraged. You could, we can kind of paraphrase it like this, what their reasonings are. We know Jesus' origin and status. He's a hometown boy. Who does this upstart think he is? That's where they're going with this, right? And we know, even from experiences we've had, that people can do that, can't they? Once someone, uh, they grow up in their hometown, and then they gain some sort of fame or notoriety, uh, some sort of uh, yeah, notoriety uh, publicly, and then they come back, and it's like, well, we know this person. We watched him grow up. And what it actually does is it, it, it leads people, or it can lead people, to undermine and to discount or to dismiss to dismiss 
what that person says. And that's exactly what's going on with Jesus. They're outraged because essentially what he's doing by teaching them is saying, I, even though you know me and know where I came from, I have something to tell you and to teach you. And they're like, we know you. We know your family. So they're outraged. What led them to being outraged? Well, you can see it. It's their familiarity with Jesus. It's that aspect of familiarity breeds contempt. Or maybe we could say it a little bit more like this. They think they know Jesus, and what they think they know becomes this basis for a preconception of what a carpenter's son should be and what he should look like. And that familiarity, that kind of wrongful familiarity, leads them to outrage over Jesus. So that's kind of the crowd's response. That's the Nazarene's response. But then Jesus himself explains their response further. He explains his response further in the rest of the passage. Uh, So we see in the second part of the passage that not only can familiarity lead to outrage over Jesus, familiarity can lead to dishonoring and disbelieving Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 57. But Jesus said to them, so he's talking back to the Nazarenes now. He's evidently heard their reasonings, their thought processes. And notice what he says. A prophet is not dishonored, which makes sense, right? If you think about what a prophet is, what's a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks for God. We kind of think of a prophet as someone who foretells the future, and yes, they did that. But in general terms, a prophet speaks for God. He's a mouthpiece for God. And you would think, okay, with that status as a prophet, they should be honored. And that's the first thing that Jesus affirms. A prophet is not dishonored, except in one place. The only place a prophet is dishonored is in the fatherland. It's the same word that's used earlier. And in his home or in his household. The only place a prophet a spokesman for God is dishonored is in his own territory, among his own family, among his own kin. And if you look back to the Old Testament, you, there are several examples that could prove this statement of Jesus. You can start with Moses, the preeminent prophet. You go back to Moses and think about Moses, right? He's, he's commissioned to be a deliverer of Israel, and um, he comes back to his people And yes, God does use him, and yes, the people eventually do listen to him, but Moses actually gets treated quite badly by the Israelites several times. They dishonor him. They say, yeah, we're we're hightailing it back to Egypt. Why? Because they had a connection with him. They knew there was this sort of familiarity. You could see it even more so in the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Uh, If you remember Elijah, uh, um, it's... uh, both Elijah and Elisha show up in First and Second Kings when there's increasing Baal worship in Israel, and Elijah's always confronting Ahab and, and that whole sequence of events. Well, Elijah has to run quite often for his life, even after he, he deals with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, because he's, he's familiar. Same thing with Elisha. He, uh, he has a He's dishonored in his own hometown. In fact, this is the very two people that Jesus illustrates talking in the same episode in Luke. Turn, if you will, to Luke. 
in Luke 4, and it's, we think it's the same episode where he's talking, and he uses the same illustrations that I just used of Elijah and Elisha. Notice what he says, Luke 4, 24. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a place outside of Israel, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, his his, uh, Elijah's pr- uh, protege, his, his uh, successor, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, again, a guy outside of Israel. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, he's illustrating this point that Elijah and Elisha had plenty of honor from the, the, the preeminent general of the Syrian army, Naaman. They had plenty of honor from this widow in this place outside of Israel, but not inside of Israel. In fact, there's a, um, there's a history of this with prophets in Israel. You can think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is speaking to his people right before the Babylonians come and cart off the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylon. And he's speaking the, um, the, the word all over the place. He's speaking in the temple. He's speaking in the court of the king. And yet he is, he is despised. He is a despised prophet in and among his own people. How were the Israelites supposed to respond to prophets? And notice Jesus is implicitly calling himself a prophet, isn't he? He's saying, I speak for God. He's implicitly calling himself that. How were Israelites supposed to, speak, uh, to treat prophets? Deuteronomy 18.15 tells us. Moses is giving the last bit of the law. And Deuteronomy 18.15 says this. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So there's going to be a coming prophet, like an ultimate coming prophet, the prophet, who turns out to be Jesus, who's going to come, and you're supposed to listen to him. Notice where the prophet comes from, from your brothers, from in your midst, from your fatherland, from your own hometowns. Just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God or see the great, this great fire anymore lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And really what that does, that passage does, it sets up for future prophets like, like Joshua and Samuel and those guys. But ultimately, it does set up for the ultimate prophet who will be Jesus. But the point is, even though the prophet is going to come from your brothers, from amongst you, that familiarity should cause, it shouldn't cause you to dismiss him. It should cause you to listen because he is speaking on behalf of God. So Jesus is saying, you're dishonoring me. How are they dishonoring Jesus? By not listening to his teaching, by not listening and responding. What does Jesus call? Repent. 
the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. They're not repenting, they're not listening, so they're dishonoring Jesus at the very base level of, for him being a prophet of God. They, because of their familiarity, they are dishonoring Jesus. They're dishonoring him as a messenger for God. And then Matthew adds a little bit more um, as the narrator in verse 58. And he did not do there many deeds of power, many miracles. Now, he already did some. Why do I know that? Because back up in verse 54, when the crowd start, or when the Nazarenes start talking, they talk about how did this one get, where did this teaching and these deeds of power come from? So he's evidently done some among them, and even in verse 58, it says he's done some. He didn't do many, but he did some. And why didn't he? He didn't do their many deeds of power on account of their unbelief. So, by dishonoring Jesus, they've also disbelieved him. And faith has been a, a, a key undercurrent in the gospel of Matthew thus far. We talk about repentance all the time, but the flip side of the coin of repentance is faith. What is repentance? What Jesus was calling for is laying down arms, saying, I, I, am, I am not Lord of myself. I'm not king of my own life. I'm not master of my own destiny. I, I renounce sin. I renounce allegiance to myself, and I renounce allegiance to sin. And, but you can't renounce allegiance to something without having allegiance to something else. And so the flip side of repentance is faith. Faith. I entrust myself to you. I commit myself to you. I swear allegiance to you. That's the idea of faith. This word here for unbelief, it's the opposite of faith, obviously, but here's how one of the dictionaries I looked at this week describes this. This is really good. This word for unbelief indicates unwillingness to commit oneself to another or respond positively to the other's words or actions. Now, we often think of unbelief as factual, belief or unbelief as factual, don't we? We think, all right, if I believe something, it means uh, proposition one, proposition two, proposition three, yeah, I assent mentally to those being true. Now, that is part of belief, but that's not biblical faith. Faith in the Bible is always, its object is not just facts, kind of abstract facts. The object of biblical belief is a person. It's always a person. That's what that dictionary definition spoke to, is you're committing yourself to another. That's faith. You're committing yourself, you're entrusting yourself to another. In other words, faith is a transaction between you and another person. You have to, if, if I'm going to say that I entrust myself to so-and-so, I have to have a transaction with that person, say, I'm committing myself to you. I'm entrusting myself to you. That's the idea of biblical faith. In fact, you can see a great example, in fact, a counter-illustration to what Jesus is talking about back in Matthew 8, when he's doing tons of miracles. In Matthew 8, 5, 
we meet the Roman centurion. Let me read this account again, just to show you what, how has Matthew been talking about faith already. Matthew 8, 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion, a Roman centurion, an outsider, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. So imagine that, Jesus marveling. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Did the servant have some factual knowledge about Jesus? Well, certainly. But that, his faith went so much beyond that. What did it amount to? To the centurion coming to Jesus and committing his case to Jesus because of who Jesus is and what he can do. And that is always biblical faith. It is entrusting yourself, committing yourself to Jesus because of who he is. He's the king. He's the savior. He's God the Son incarnate. He's the only one who has sacrificed for his people in place of their sins and lived the righteous life that they could not live in their place. And you repent, you lay down arms and say, I'm, I'm, I'm done living for myself. I'm tired of being my own king. I renounce sin, I renounce rebellion, and I entrust myself to you as king, as Lord, as Savior. And... Notice the exact opposite illustration. There was an outsider. It's the kind of thing that Jesus is illustrating. An outsider, a Roman who has this faith, but those in Israel don't. And notice that because the Roman centurion had faith, then God's power, Jesus' power, was manifested subsequent to faith. Whereas here, the way Matthew ends in verse 58, and he did not do there many deeds of power, many miracles. Why? On account of their unbelief, meaning that their unbelief, their lack of commitment to Christ, to his teaching, to who he is, to repentance, cuts them off from seeing God's power being done. And that's how it works. God, God doesn't Yes, has Jesus done some miracles to authenticate who he is? Yes, he has. But when those deeds of power, when those miracles, when those signs are ignored and are treated with unbelief, then God cuts off future signs and miracles. God's not begging for faith. He doesn't just keep giving miracles and keep giving miracles to harden people's hearts. No, he cuts off further miracles, further revelation, further expressions of his power because those he's already given were responded to with unbelief. But again, what's the source of all of this? Why? Why did the Nazarenes not respond? Because of their familiarity with Jesus. They thought they knew. 
They thought they knew who Jesus was and what he wanted, who, what he was capable of or not. And that's what drove them to outrage and dishonoring Jesus and to unbelief. The heart of a wrong... So is it right to be familiar with Jesus? Yes. <laughs> you should know Jesus and you should know and want to know about Jesus. But there's a sort of wrongful familiarity where you can get really, really close to knowing Jesus without actually knowing Jesus. And the heart of that wrong familiarity with Jesus is when you have a preconception of who he is and what he does and what he wants and what he can and cannot do. You have a preconception rather than truly listening to Jesus for who he says he is, and what he demands of you. When you have a preconception of, oh, I know what Jesus is like, and you may very well have a great deal of right conception about who Jesus is like, but that doesn't mean that you know Jesus. In fact, you can be in the most dangerous position. If you know a lot about Jesus, and you're really, really close, you have these preconceptions about who Jesus is, but you haven't actually repented and committed yourself to him and trusted yourself to him, you are in the most dangerous place you can be. So let's talk about how we see this sort of familiarity, um, how we encounter it. We can encounter it out in the culture, out in the world, because our nation was founded on by and large, Christian principles, right? Uh, everyone had a Judeo, uh, by and large, there was a Judeo-Christian ethic. Well, there's, a, there's definitely a cultural familiarity with Jesus, isn't there? Even today, it's waning. People know less and less about who Jesus is, actually. But there is a sort of cultural familiarity with Jesus. How do people out there, how do people in the world, how do people in our culture think about Jesus? Well, generally, I would argue they think about Jesus as he's a good teacher, and he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. You know, he's, someone, he's not uptight. Um, he's, he's someone who doesn't care too much about sin, and he's all about love and grace, and he's not about rules for sure. Isn't that kind of how our culture thinks and talks about Jesus? So then what happens when you encounter someone like that, that have a general conception of Jesus, and then when you speak to them and proclaim to them, here's, here's, here's who Jesus says that he is. Here's a biblical portrait of Jesus. What happens to people? How do people respond to that? Outrage. I remember I had a, a when I was teaching uh, at university as a mathematics lecturer up outside of Spokane, I, I was having a conversation with a colleague one day, and I don't remember exactly how we got onto this, but we were talking about how the exclusivity of Jesus, that, uh, you know, there was kind of, on her side, there was just this kind of general conception that, you know, all faiths lead to God, and everything's valid, and, you know, Jesus wouldn't say anything against that, you know, he's, because why? He's a nice guy, right? Uh, she had that kind of conception. And then I quoted to her John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And her response was essentially, well, Jesus couldn't have said that. Or that's not right, or that's not true. Why? Because she had a 
preconception about who Jesus was. And she didn't listen to what the scriptures said. She didn't listen to how Jesus described himself. So you're going to encounter that. When you give a biblical portrayal of Jesus, there's going to be outrage. Jesus can't be like that. He wouldn't do that. Jesus didn't have anything to say against homosexuals. Jesus didn't have anything to say against judgments. Friends, what have we seen in the Gospel of Matthew? Part of the beauty of going through the Gospels is you get it firsthand. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus says some astounding things and very uncomfortable things. And I would argue that's the best thing you can do. When you're, when you're presenting the gospel to someone, ideally you're hoping for an opportunity to be in a long-term basis, sit down with that person and say, let's go through a gospel, my friend. Let's go through Mark. Or you go through Matthew, but Matthew, as we've seen, has a fair amount of compli- I mean, there's a lot going on in Matthew, right? Not that there's not a lot going on in Mark, but Mark's a little bit shorter, a little bit easier to work through maybe. So start with Mark or John or something like that, and just start sitting down with the person you're proclaiming the gospel to and walk them through, because you want them to see who Jesus really is. So that they're not just having this kind of vague cultural conception of who Jesus is, but they get it firsthand. And they're going to be shocked. There are going to be times where it's like, Jesus said that? Really? You're going to say, yeah, yeah, he said that. Why did he say that? And you're going to be able to walk them through so that they have an accurate portrayal and understanding of who Jesus is. So that's what we encounter, you know, in gospel conversations with our culture. But there's another kind of familiarity that we encounter, and it's this. There can be a deadly familiarity with Jesus among the people of the local church, among us. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing the gospel, even, the true gospel, but not responding in repentance and faith. Again, you can, you can if you're not listening to the scriptures and you don't hear them, you kind of gloss over the difficult parts, then you can be in a position of familiarity with Jesus without actually knowing Jesus. There's an old Puritan, um, some of you, uh, Steve told me a number of years ago, went through in a Bible study, uh, this old Puritan book called The Almost Christian Discovered by a guy named Matthew Mead. It is not a comfortable book to read, I'll just say that, but it is so healthy to read because he basically goes through, you can just look at the table of contents in this book, and he's like, you can go this far and yet be an almost Christian. Well, if you're an almost Christian, you're not a Christian, and that's his whole point. He's trying to stir people up and say, are you only familiar with Jesus, or are you repentant? Are you following him? And the problem is, is if you're an almost Christian and you're in the midst of the church, you hear all sorts of truth. You even may mentally ascend to that truth, and yet there's no commitment. You are week after week hardening your soul for greater judgment. You will be held accountable to a greater judgment. So that's why it's deadly, dangerous. Here's another way this can manifest in the local church with kids. With kids, this sort of deadly familiarity can happen if we are not very, very careful. 
Kids can hang around the church. They know the, the church lingo. They know the church truths. But the question is why, right? Are they doing it for acceptance? Why, why are they doing this? And that's very hard to discern, especially as a parent. But what are we looking for? Are they listening to Jesus' teaching and demands for allegiance? We must be very careful in affirming children as Christians until they demonstrate an allegiance to King Jesus. Just because, kids, I'm, I'm, I know there's a few of you in, in the audience today, just because your parents are Christians, just because you hang around church, that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is seeing the loveliness and the beauty of Jesus Christ and knowing that you're a sinner, even as a young one, and that you need to repent and entrust yourself to Jesus as your king, as the boss of your life. And so we must be very careful as parents and as those who are around children in our church to not affirm them as Christians until they are demonstrating allegiance to King Jesus. Because otherwise we inoculate them. We inoculate them to the gospel. They're almost Christians. They think they're Christians, but they're really not. And it becomes harder to speak to them in the future. So we've talked about, here's a couple ways this can show up. How do we guard against a wrong familiarity? How do we guard against this wrong familiarity? Well, first, well, first, we could even say it like this. You need to pray to the Lord. Open my eyes. If I'm fake, if I'm not real, if I'm not genuine, show me. Because I'd rather know now, even if it was embarrassing, like I've lived my whole life being here and I'm not real. And that's embarrassing, right, to admit that. But to pray to the Lord, it's better to have your eyes open to see, do I really know Jesus? So prayer, first, asking God to open your eyes because he's the only one who can do it. But then even this, are you really listening to what the Bible says about Jesus? Again, it's just really easy to read something in Scripture, and because we have a preconception about Jesus, say, well, yeah, 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 but, and just kind of gloss it over, right? Rather than listening to that, ooh, that's uncomfortable. Ooh, that's not what I thought. That wasn't my conception of Jesus. And what do you need to do? Relinquish your conception of Jesus and let the Scriptures inform your conception of Jesus. Really listening and then not merely, merely listening, but then what, is, what are the Gospels, what is the Scripture supposed to do to lead us to awe of Jesus? It's really hard to just kind of have a, an aloof familiarity from someone when you are in awe of them, when you love them, when you're delighted in them, when you're astounded by who they are. Yes, there can be a sort of astounding, uh, you know, the, the people of Nazareth had a sort of uh, amazement of Jesus, but... It, was, it didn't go to him, to his identity. As you see Jesus in the scriptures, it should reveal his identity and you should be standing in awe. And if you're standing in awe of Jesus, it guards you against a wrongful familiarity. And then it's not just standing in awe, it's doing what he says. Are you willing to do what he says from the scriptures? 
uh, one of my professors at seminary, he, he has this term, a uh, hermeneutic, that just means the way you interpret scripture, of surrender. Do you come to the scriptures with a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting the scriptures, of surrender? That whatever it says, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to, first and foremost, lay down arms. I'm not going to try to live life for myself. I'm not going to live for my sin. That's repentance in both an initial and an ongoing way. I'm going to repent and keep repenting. And I'm going to entrust myself to him because that's what Jesus wants. He wants your commitment. He wants your allegiance. He wants your faith. I'm going to trust and keep trusting. And then what? Follow. That's discipleship. To learn Jesus and to follow Jesus. Are you willing to do what he says, right? Sometimes we read the scriptures and we see who he is and it's like, yeah, yeah, I get that. I acknowledge that. Are you going to do it? Are you going to obey? If you're in a, just a familiarity, a mere familiarity with Jesus, you're going to want to not obey. You're going to want to not surrender. You're going to want to not listen. But having that willingness by God's grace to say, no, whatever Jesus says, I'm going to do it no matter how hard it is. And we grow in that. We're not all there, but we grow in that. That's part of the Christian life is growing in that surrender and obedience to Jesus so that we're not just familiar with Jesus, but we are followers of Jesus, loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Beware that familiarity with Jesus does not lead you to unbelief. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, um, help us not to be a merely familiar people. Guard us from being almost Christians. Lord, please, if there are any in this room who do not know you, who are merely familiar with you but do, are not committed to you, that you would grant them repentance and faith and that you would open their eyes to see your loveliness. Yes, you are severe, but you are lovely and good. You are all these things at the same time. We see that from the Gospels, and we thank you that you have become a servant to rescue your people so that they could know the joy of serving you, knowing you, enjoying you, delighting in you as king for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for, in your grace and mercy, doing that to our hearts who do know you, who have entrusted ourselves. Help us to keep following. Help us to keep believing. Help us to keep listening to the scriptures for what they really say about you and obey, obeying. Lord, we can do none of this except by your grace, and yet we know it's possible through your power, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your people. So we ask for it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.